Okay, so welcome to the second in our series of podcasts for the Winter Conference um, this year. So today we are joined by David Judel and Anthony Spate uh, from the MI department AHDB. Uh, so we're just going to have a 40-minute chat or so around the grain market and the current influencers of that. So hand over to David, just to introduce yourself. Cool, thanks Chris. Um, yeah, I, I guess we want to talk about a few different things today, probably from a, a global perspective, because we've seen prices domestically rise to their highest since what 2012-13 kind of levels. Um, and I guess the, the main question everyone's always got at this point is, is that going to continue? Are we still <laughs> going to see these prices for the rest of the season? Um, and then what does it mean for new crop? Because you get to this point where um, a lot of the information can be priced in and realistically we're going to start looking towards the new crop soon. Um, and I think it's something that I've said to you before, Chris, and I think it's kind of like a conversation that we've had previously around that longer term planning. And that's kind of a big thing that we're pushing at the moment is to think about, you know, not just what you're harvesting this year, but also start looking at 2022 markets as well. Um, because with the reducing um, levels of subsidy that we're now going to get in the coming years and all the changes to everything, it's just long term planning is going to be the key. Um, but uh, I guess, Ant, do you want to start off by just giving a bit of, of a review as to where we're yes. at and what's going on at the moment? Yeah, sure. So like you said, David, we've got quite inflated prices at the moment. As we are saying, uh, we're looking at the other week, our old crop prices are over over 20% on new crop prices at the moment. And these are levels we've not seen since uh, 2012 and 13. Um, well, obviously, as the UK at this current moment, we are trading import parity. So therefore, our prices are very reactive at the moment to global um, affairs. And what's quite interesting is these global affairs are not just affecting our current old crop uh, May 21 prices. Uh, we are seeing this um, also uh, put a reaction to our NOV 21 and NOV 22 prices. So reasons for this, actually, for this inflation uh, that we're having in grain markets at the moment is from the aggressive purchasing of many nation states who um, are coming back to the market after I know we're still in the, the midst of the coronavirus pandemic, but they've obviously decimated grain supplies and they are now purchasing to um, rebuild stocks. One of these main purchases is actually China. Um, again, it's for food security and to feed a recovering pig herd. Um, but ah, this, of course, uh, so there is there is a wee bit, Dwinsey. You think, well, of course, we'd sort of not really seen that one coming, did we? Because we all heard um, about the disasters over there, and then didn't yeah. think, of course, they were going to rebuild that. So that has obviously influenced the market quite a bit. Yeah. So China, have, actually, the USDA, USDA has constantly revised up um, Chinese imports of maize throughout this marketing year so far. They're still rebuilding a pig herd. Uh, uh, domestic pork prices are still high. So therefore, we can see this demand ongoing as we progress throughout this marketing year. But then what's also uh, quite interesting is this isn't actually being met by a physical demand. So at the uh, when actually the coronavirus happened initially, maize markets were significantly pressured as we had the removal of demand for bioethanol. And coinciding with that, we also had a large uh, US maize crop, which was forecast to, to actually come. So they were going to actually produce nearly 400 million tonnes. But now that isn't actually going to come into fruition. 
and we're going to have the the lowest global ending May stock since 2014-15. So a large rally at the moment is is because of of produced supply um, from a physical point of view, but also a political point of view as well, because we've um, got Russia imposing export quotas, um, uh, which will commence mm-hmm. from February till June. They also put in a, an export tax on wheat, which has actually just been revised up to 50 euros per ton. So markets at the moment are, are very um, bullish towards that sort of news. Obviously, Russia being the cheapest uh, grain on the market, and they almost set a level for all other countries to work off. And um, yeah, so it, it will inflate global prices across the board. And Peter, I think we sort of heard rumour that uh, after the wildfires in Australia, they'd had a sort of cooling effect on the climate and there was a rumour that that uh, yields would be higher there as well. Yeah. So obviously we've had a we've had a moderate La Nina this year. So from um, December till February now, um, this is a, a weather event in South America, which usually would mean you get a cold, wet period in Australia, but then you'll get a dry period in South America mainly. But yeah, Australia, have they've got a bumper um, wheat crop, which is coming online at the moment. They, the harvest is just wrapping up. But actually, in South America, they have been impacted significantly by the dry weather. And going forward, something that's going to affect this and could affect our domestic grain prices are is the second maize crop, which Brazil will plant in the coming months now. So they've just planted a soybean crop, which has been adversely affected by the La Nina drought. They're then going to harvest a soybean crop very late, and they're going to plant their second maize crop even later. And this could affect yields too. So again, Brazil are a large um, producer and exporter, and this second maize crop will be their exportable crop. So later on into the year, this is something that could uh, definitely shake up global markets, especially if the UK is still trading at uh, import parity. So I've got a question for you then, because this is this is my, my my kind of job in the team. I'm like that annoying <laughs> devil's advocate that keeps on coming back with these like questions. Um, so you're talking about like South American um, crops there, um, you know, strong Chinese demand. Uh, there's a there's a point in in the season. There's a kind of a point in the calendar year where everyone's focus will start to shift to um, to new crop and um, you're looking at sort of planting conditions and weather patterns and that kind of thing. Um, given that, you know, basic economics would make me think that increased supply, uh, increased prices would stimulate supply. Um, is there a point in the year, you know, late winter, early spring kind of time where even though there's these kind of current issues that the market suddenly kind of gets relaxed and goes, well, it's okay if we can hold out even though we know we've got really tight stocks and may stocks um into the summer if we can hold out a little bit longer there's a big crop coming does is there a point where that sort of sentiment changes for looking for the long term i i would say a lot of the uh, sentiment negative and bullish sentiment in markets has probably been factored in at the moment i do agree that the this price hike will stimulate a supply for next year so something to look out for will be um, the soybean and maize ratio planting in the US and prices at the moment will favour certain commodities that will actually come online next October so yeah I, I mean 
at the moment, I would say markets are quite reactive to this bad news, to political bad news on export restrictions. But at the same time, I believe we are well supplied going into the next marketing year. So when we bring that to home, I mean, that's two things that you guys have kind of answered there. You know, one of my big questions would be that when we get, you know, we're sitting there watching May futures, everyone's like, wow, you know, 200, 210 pounds a ton for us yeah. up here in the north. At some point, May gets closer to November. So as you're saying, at that point, where is the switch? Do we get to May and then May has to equal November futures? Or where is the turning point here? You know, because November futures are needing to come up to match May. We know there's not the wheat in the UK, although, you know, a few friends uh, haven't sold anything yet, which they're in for a windfall, aren't they? Unfortunately, yeah. they can't go anywhere to spend it. So there's their <laughs> karma for you. Um, yeah, they but, can buy you a drink, you know, then, Chris, surely. <laughs> it must have been my marketing tips. Wasn't it? You know, listen, listen out for Chris's words of wisdom. Um but, you know, is there any reason to look at market in your grain just now versus May? I mean, I can't see anything between now and May. And then when you're looking at it, um, actually, you know, why, you know, I'm trying to pick out if you've got, say, for instance, oats just now looking at that, it's not particularly brilliant. But actually next year's oats are looking OK. So at some point, would you look at just holding on to what you've got? Is that maybe a cause for concern as well? I, th- um, I think for for old crop like you say there's there's enough support to think that you know we're not going to see prices drop off the edge of a cliff between now and what realistically second half july first half august when there's a decent enough northern hemisphere crop coming in um but that spread between the old crop and new crop could get really wide um i think because we've got such a small crop um domestically we're going to need to import a lot of grain towards the end of the season to kind of cover that gap between old crop and new crop starting i actually think that that spread will stay really wide for for a long period um and i don't see those prices being able to converge until kind of to the last minute the only way i can see those prices converging sooner than that is if we have a significant enough weather issue in the spring like ant was saying us um maize and soy plantings if we get a year like we did when was it two years ago two three years ago where they had a really wet spring in the u.s and there was like yeah. massive flooded fields if you get something like that then yeah i'd see new crop coming up um and sort of filling that gap but without that i think the new crop will sort of steadily tail off um yeah. and then all of a sudden when the old crop market's over and people have got into the harvest um you know very quickly there'll be just a, a snap in the market and any old crop will Will suddenly fall realistically you know we're, we're going to have to import in first half of august to keep us happy definitely second half of july that could be the yeah. point where it starts to switch but if there's a really massive bumper french crop that comes online because they get brilliant weather and all of a sudden we're at the end of our season and we're importing french vessels that's going to be the point where that old crop market just dies a death and you know suddenly drops down but until then i I still think there'll be a big gap until that point and up to that point as well we could see our delivered premiums in the north extend as we head throughout this marketing year as we saw in 2013-14 i believe when we had uh, a washout planting and then production that year was just under 12 million tons we saw delivered premiums all throughout that marketing year extend so just before that point you could someone uh, you could see someone gain uh, financially for holding on, 
but at the same time if we have large we have a good northern hemisphere crop coming you know uh, russia planted vast areas of grain for next year um some of that might be led to actually uh, price increase as well um we could see the market uh, our new crop market drop off but at the moment i would say our new crop prices pose significant opportunity for anyone who's in possession of grain right now or if they planted crops sorry to be harvested to actually sell yeah if you look at the historical price context of where nov 21 is i mean the current three-year average and i'm looking at the i'm going to do a bit of plugging here so at the bottom of our grain market daily email that we send out uh tuesday to friday we've got a price graph that's got um may 21 and nov 21 futures and then the three-year um, moving average on it as well. So at the moment, the three-year moving average is um, £160 per tonne, pretty much bang on. And you've got um, NOV21 trading at, uh, well, well into the 170s at the moment, what we're trading at 172.50. Um, so, you know, the, the new crop market is well above average. For this time of the year, that new crop market is pretty much at the highest levels that we've seen for the past 10 years. Um, and it's like Ant was saying, it's all being driven by this by this old crop. So there is there is a significant danger of switching. And I, I, something yeah. you said earlier, Chris, as well, it's that strategy that um, okay, if you make a decision and you go, okay, I'm going to uh, I'm going to either sell or not sell. Do you have enough strategy then in place to then back that up with further decisions as well? You know, it's more than just one yes or no kind of answer. Absolutely. Yeah. And it, it does come to an interesting point in strategy. You know, there's been many, there's those that, that you know, have to or want to sell at harvest and continue on with that. And, the, you know, the five year average isn't vastly different from those that have a marketing strategy. And then there are those that will play futures in advance of their crop as well. And then you have those that probably, and I'm trying to think, is this the epiphany that we're all trying to get to is to actually over year a stock so that you've, you know, you've got it in the shed to trade as and when you need to? Or want uh, to? It's a matter of storage and cash, isn't it, in that equation? But I suppose because interest rates are low at the moment, it's um, it's possible to do that. And you know, um, and you you did that bit of work probably about a year ago now, wasn't it? Where we were looking at oh, yeah. like the carry from old crop to new crop mm. last year. Like last year we had like was it 20, 20 quid carry from old crop into new crop? Yeah, because yeah, of the weather issues we're seeing. Yeah, and now we've got like a, a fifty quid discount the other way. So. It's it, it'd be one of those ones where it's probably not something that's the right thing to do every year. No. But in years like last year where you have that big carry, then and, and obviously the way the market's then carried on, anything that you would have produced from what, two thousand nineteen harvest, if that had been carried on and you know, you're just selling it as probably just straight feed grains at the moment, you wouldn't have kept the quality, would you? Um then yeah, you you you'd be well in the money, wouldn't you? But you've just got to be able to afford the storage capability and the um mm-hmm. and finance of it. So uh, yeah, exactly. And domestically, so looking internally at us, you know, we've, we've seen the stats um, come back from the surveys, and where are we? I mean, obviously the the amount of maize um, hasn't come into the UK that probably generally has, and you know, you wonder is that because uh, American farmers aren't actually selling it; they're storing it over. Um, price of maize quite low. Uh, now, can they get it in imports, uh, tax, all the rest of it? Is it there to get in the first place? But then how is that actually impacting our domestic feed market in terms of barley? You know, there's a massive rush to export barley, but now we haven't imported the maize, I'm assuming. 
So should barley prices go up now? Um, I suppose th- th- there's there's a feeling that they could go up towards the end of the season because um, there's a there's a huge level of domestic demand for barley, and we know that all like you say the, the, the feed guys have changed their rations to include as much barley as is physically possible um, in everything that they're doing. Um, and like you say, there was a big chunk that was exported earlier in the season to get ahead of the um, the, the the Brexit deadline on the 31st of, uh, of December. So in, in theory, yes, it's there. And what we've saw is that earlier in the season, uh, maize prices were relatively competitive coming into the UK, um, sort of September, October, November kind of time. Um, so we actually saw pretty strong imports coming in in that period. So between SEP and NOV, um, we imported um, about 400,000 tonnes of maize from the um, EU and then another 370-odd from non-EU um, destinations. But since December, because the maize price has been rising uh, because of the issues around the world, it hasn't been as competitive to come into the UK. Um, so, yeah, like you say, they, they, I would expect that barley demand will stay strong. Um and it's why we've seen, like we were saying before we started recording, you know, barley prices 150 quid and above in a year where we've produced more. Um, it's, it's it's purely because it's been dragged up by other commodities and there's a lot of demand domestically for it. Yeah. And wouldn't a lot of that maze have actually, wouldn't it have been booked in March and April when literally the arse fell out of the maze market as well for September, October delivery? Yeah, probably have done some stuff further forwards as well. So, and and again, we we saw it. Uh, what was it a couple of years ago again that we saw there was a um, there was a real cheap moment for maize around that September October time, and people did book a lot of maize for the rest of the season. They bought like sep April runs of imported maize to come in. So we could still have seen that that people have like done some forward um, some forward trades on it um, and see that keep on coming in. Um, but at the moment, it feels that there's going to be a lot of people wanting barley because I think the feed guys have still continued to, to base their rations um, off of it. So it could be an interesting, you know, people looking at the last minute, obviously seed's going to be tight, you know, not, not a brilliant back end planting season in the UK again, you know, a lot of spring crop to go in. People are looking at the malt and barley market, especially further north in Scotland here and thinking, well, you know, there is a bit of an oversupply with them being offline there probably is the potential to, to switch. Well, I mean, you grow it for feed if you want anyway, but the, the feed market is going to be there. To, it's almost feed's going to be more in demand than malting, you would you would think by that. Yeah, in some ways. I mean, if you look at the, the proportions of what um, of what the um, feed compounders have been using, so in November, um, there was uh, 43% more barley was used and 20% less wheat was used to produce um gb animal feed compared to the the year before um so in, in the season to date for july to november uh we've used um 650,000 tons of barley in feed which is 35 percent almost uh, more so you know you're seeing a, a huge increase in in barley usage um but at the same time you know from a malting point of view there's a huge spring crop that's out there and there's been a lot more rejections um, throughout the country which is then helping to kind of feed that um that demand because anything that's being rejected from the maltings is just being sent straight into the feed heap yeah and we're possibly going to have a, another large barley crop for next year as well you know we're, we're 
intentions are to plan over 1.1 million hectares again. So you could be looking at, you know, three successive large um, barley crops that the UK has produced. Uh, that's interesting. And uh, I, again, there, there does seem to be an export market for that, um, you know, in terms of how quickly stuff was able to, to get out pre the Brexit, the Brexit deadline. Um, which yeah. probably hasn't come as, as as harsh as what we were expecting, but uh, no, it's an interesting. It's, I mean, it's, it's, it's good news that we've got that that market because we know there'll be Spanish and Portuguese um, demand for, um, for 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 barley as animal feed um, from a European level, and that helps to get rid of a lot of the harvest surplus that we end up with. Um, and also, um, you know, we've been more competitive into. Uh, North African nations um, because of the mm. bigger crops that we've had. So there, there's still opportunities. Um, it's it's always that question of if those opportunities are there at the right price and if the market's able to um, to actually provide a return. Most of the time when we're talking about exporting, we're looking at the lowest common denominator for price rather than anything that's big. So, um, yeah, t- timing is going to be the difficult thing this year there's not there's, there's probably some big opportunities out there for people to 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 get some good trades on but the, the timing of it's going to be difficult and there'll probably be some people that might wait too long and like we were saying yep. earlier if that new crop comes online get caught out yeah absolutely absolutely there's always casualties now if we move towards the oilseed market uh you know things are going to get very interesting there and i think probably in a, a previous discussion um with you guys you know we saw we saw the shortfall that was going to be uh, in Europe at that point, I and mean, we were included in that. Has that come to fruition? Is is there a, a short fall of oilseed rape in Europe? Do you think we're going to see a, a price hike there? Well, we've seen a, a price hike in rapeseed throughout this marketing year off the back of uh, energy markets that have recovered um, from the uh, severe pressure throughout March and April. So obviously uh, crude oil hit rock bottom values which obviously dragged rapeseed down with it and as that slowly recovered rapeseed prices have recovered with it another large driver of our continental rapeseed price so actual european uh matif rapeseed uh, futures contract is um issues with soybeans in south america so the last couple of months we've seen soybeans absolutely rally off the back of uh dry weather in South America and Brazil actually being unable to plant their soybean crop. But as rapeseed goes, crushing, I mean, I, I hear uh, information from people in, in the industry that crushes are, are well supplied. Um, farmers selling, there's not actually too much farmers that uh, need to currently actually sell their rapeseed. We've seen the area significantly drop off for um next year obviously with uh, pest pressure and the cabbage stem flea beetle but we're not going to see domestic prices significantly hike up above continental prices because our rapeseed market is always going to trade at import parity so we'll always trade at a continental value mm. which is a, you know we do um obviously see the growing industry for us would be you know watching the the salmon fish food market for for these uh, offshore uh, fish farms that are popping up, you know, and there's a lot of pulses goes into there and the rape oil uh, in that with the feed compounders, you mm. know, and I think that that was rumoured to have grown 30% in a year. Do you think, you know, domestically we're actually 
you know, going to try start and see our own market um, setting a price internally. Um, I, th- I think you will, you will for some things definitely. Kind of like you say, those like specific points in the market. I think the 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 wider issue that um, the market has got is that the the oil that um, we're mainly aiming for from rapeseed can still be very interchangeable with other things um, mm. and also from an animal feed point of view so we've seen an increase in soybean and um, soy oil imports and other vegetable oil imports coming into the UK for the last couple of years with our smaller crop because it's still more cost efficient to be bringing those in um, so yeah there's there, there is a you know an increase in demand in those areas it's just it probably won't equate to enough to offset the lower demand that we see from the sort of the main crushing points because they've got you know, more efficient, uh, cost-efficient products that they can bring in to, to crush. So yeah, if, if you look, if, if I play devil's advocate on that point there, and you said, right, well, hang on a minute, and the, the big buzzword, you know, is carbon and carbon trading. So how can you bring in oils from Brazil when we are looking at all this carbon footprint, you know, in, in carbon emissions against oilseed rape grown in the UK? Surely there has to be almost a carbon tax on that cargo coming in from there does it not or how would that how would that be implicated by this sort of scenario if you like it's an, it's an interesting one actually that is something that i was looking at and talking about with people earlier this week because we were someone was asking me a question about um, animal feed rations and the sort of the the carbon footprint of those and and they're using a sort of similar argument of going you know surely soy coming in is just you know massively off the scale it's like, well, yeah, when, when you look at it as an individual product, the amount of carbon, um, you know, for each kilogram of soy coming in, it is much higher because of the distances it's traveling. But then if you look at the end animal feed ration, when you then sort of compare the, the volume going in, you know, in a pig finisher ration at the moment, soy meal is only taking up 15 to 17 percent of the ration, whereas domestically produced wheat and wheat feed and barley is taking up 60 65 percent so actually by the time you sort of accumulate all that up even though the 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 wheat domestically produced has a lower carbon footprint it produces an equal if not greater volume of um, carbon into the end animal feed because of the um, sort of the the balances within the ratio Um, the other tricky thing with it as well is um, from a from a feed compounder's point of view you've got those issues with the the cost of soy and the um, sort of the, the carbon cost of soy, um, but it is still providing the the best source of um, of nutrition and, and protein into the diet. And that can't be substituted on a sort of direct one for one basis with the level of protein that beans and rape meal can produce. So even if you wanted to sort of substitute soy out of the ration completely, you'd end up using proportionately such a larger volume of other protein sources to replace it that again you you may increase the sounds great to me but (laughs) yeah Uh, yeah. it's it's a it's a really tricky one and it's 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 then sort of incentivizing the industry to to do it and uh, and like you say if you applied a a a sort of a carbon tax in its most basic form upon soy then then yeah that it would massively price itself out but realistically that might not be the most efficient way to um to deliver animal feed and, and deliver the nutrition um it's 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 something that will carry on for quite a while and isn't just going to be sort of fixed overnight it's a very tricky yeah. one 
Instead, you know, for all the, the the different diets that are coming to fruition now, in terms of human health, you know, the the grass-fed beef seems to be one that's uh, picking up particular following, if you like. So it could all, you know, sort sort itself out in the in the short term or longer term, depending on which view you take on it. Um, yeah. And how how do you think Brexit has actually impacted this? You know, as things have turned out now, you know, we're we're a month or so past it now. Uh, how how do you think it's actually transpired in the end? Uh, well, I mean, we're, we're lucky that we got the the deal to have access to the EU. That's saved a hell of a lot of problems. Um, yeah, from from a sort of an individual farmer point of view, the immediate impact is relatively little. It's not like prices have massively swung one way or another. It's been quite stable from that aspect. The real issue has been from the sort of the the other end of the supply chain from the the food businesses side of things with issues with um flour being exported from gb to northern ireland and um tariffs that have been imposed on that um rules of origin is something that's been very tricky for people to um get their their head around from a business perspective that um there's limits on the volume of say um, Canadian wheat that can go into flour, which is about, you know, you can't have more than 15% um, Canadian wheat in, in flour before you start um, having to impose tariffs on it. And that's kind of been the, the real issue. So from a from a business point of view, from the sort of the end food point of view, there's been more issues from a farm side of things immediately. Um, nothing that's any great issue, but I suppose coming back full circle to what we were started talking about in the first place of prices, the longer term issue that's going to impact farms is the changes to the subsidy structure. And therefore, you know, everything we we're saying all the way through this about understanding your market, understanding what's driving it, you know, putting the future prices in a historical context and what happens next and then creating a marketing plan. That's the that's the key aspect to to get right, because even though there's not an immediate issue from Brexit, longer term, the industry will change from it. And it's easy to feel complacent because nothing's happened overnight, but it's kind of that, you know, death by a thousand cuts kind of thing. It will take a long time, but eventually it will it will start to impact individual businesses. Absolutely. And, you know, there's been a lot of modelling. I know Harry's done quite a bit of rotation mapping with us and FarmBench and all the rest of it. But, you know, ultimately production's going to go down in the perceived new environmental era. You know, it's... Uh, people talk about this, you know, you go direct drill and the yields drop. It's, well, are we on an artificial plateau at the minute where actually it's probably not sustainable to keep yields at that height? But what impact, you know, as we move through this, I mean, obviously England are, are, are a lot further uh, down the line with elms and Scotland's just about to start when once we figure out what it is we want to do. But um, do you think that will impact quite a bit domestically as well? Yeah, definitely. But the balance with all of these things, you know, from from an England point of view with elms and then obviously, you know, from a Scottish point of view, sort of developing any system is getting that balance right, isn't it? Between the incentive to grow a crop yeah. and the incentive to be a part of the scheme. You can't make the scheme so incentivized that, like you say, you end up stopped producing food. It, it, it has to be a balance. And that's the, the real tricky, difficult thing um, is to get that right. And and like you say, yeah, there could be issues with um, with the, the relative production of um of areas changing but but again from a, another brexit point of view um it opens up new technologies and um you know the defra um in england have and uh, the uk government have released their consultation on um, genetic editing in the last couple of weeks uh and so you know that opens up a whole host of 
potentials, oh, doesn't it? Really, that's a big, 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 big can of worms, and yeah, it, yeah. I, I suppose the market ultimately the market has to be asking for it before it's a runner, surely, or or would they matter in um, in terms of a commodity? Uh, from a commodity point of view, I don't think it matters too much. I mean, if you look at the history of what the US and South America have done with um, genetically modified crops, when obviously like GMO is different to genetic editing because of the kind of the process in, and science involved and, and what you actually are doing with the with the genes. Um, but, you know, there, there's, there's dedicated pipelines of supply of, of GMO products coming out of the US where you can get a specific crop um, and, you know, it, it's going to kind of managed it. So I think the, the global market is probably used to it to an extent. Um, I think the the big issue obviously is kind of maybe domestically and uh, consumer perception. I think, you know, look, judging by some of the press coverage, there's already been, you know, back to the 90s headlines of Frankenstein foods and all that kind of thing. And, you know, that's that's the, the real thing that I think will, will make it happen or not is will consumers actually go for it? Yeah, absolutely. And I suppose there is this, but, you know, with, with, with Scotland and food production, it's kind of a difficult one because, You'd actually suggest that you know seventy percent of most of the produce on farm actually goes to alcohol. Yeah, and that you know we saw that's actually a bit of a risk this year when you know alcohol production dropped. You know how, how big an influencer it's kind of hard to get in your mouth when we talk about you know commodities, but actually is alcohol a commodity or where does this fit into it? Um, I guess in a way it is still a commodity because you're still selling a, a sort of. A, a bulk product in a way it, it's it's that um it's that issue that we see as to you know that sort of lifespan of a market at what point is that market reaching maturity and, and something different needs to happen um and there's you know there's there's other issues that from a from a scotch whiskey point of view with the tariffs that have been imposed from the us um, you know that yeah. long term that's like a, a real big issue if that is something that is um, you know carried out and and stays in play for a number of years you know for, for the odd year or two it's uncomfortable but manageable but if you're thinking you know that 25 percent tariff is in place for five years plus you know that really questions the value of laying down large volumes of whiskey for for that market and is there enough of a market that can be transferred into um into east asia and elsewhere to be able to to offset and and, and compensate yeah it, it certainly does get interesting longer term and you, you hope that provenance is going to come to the forefront uh, yeah. in that but very difficult to do in, in current climate so if we just uh, you know have a roundup of of, of thoughts uh, anthony david what's what's the take-home message what's the advice what's the oracle going to tell um, us then for the next four or five months just don't think about may 21 Think Nov 21, Nov 22 as well, when marketing green. <laughs> Don't think the harvest coming up. Think the, one, the, the ones after that and, and what you're going to plant and ensuring that your commodity actually has an end market as well. Yeah, I'm, I'm just going to agree with that. He's, that's, that's succinctly stolen everything I was going to say. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's perfect. Well, listen, thanks very much for your time, guys. Uh, much appreciated. Well, hopefully catch up with face to face uh, later on in the season yeah hopefully always a pleasure Thank you.